Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our awesome co-hosts, Dr. Sajan Fakta and Dr. Fatil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. And we have a special guest with us, Mr. Travis McSherry. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about pediatric respiratory infections. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of Americans' family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. So Travis, thank you for being on the podcast this morning. Can you tell us about yourself? Certainly. Uh, My name's Travis. I originally started with American Ambulance as an EMT back in 2001. Became a paramedic in 2004. And about four years ago, became part of the critical care paramedic program that we have here. It's fantastic. You guys do lots of great work on that CCT program. Tell us about um, this case. Recently, I was actually working on the critical care rig, and we had a call for a response for a shortness of breath of a three-year-old. This happened to be right after the wildfires in our area were dying out, so the smoke was just settling down in the valley. We had lots of respiratory cases at that time. So it's nothing really unusual. Responded out there. And this was about 1130 at night. So just before midnight. Arrived on the scene. Fire was already there. What really struck me first is when I got there, this three-year-old was just completely limp in the mom's arms. I mean, just struggling to breathe. No real respiratory sounds. Here in the valley, we have lots of respiratory issues with that. A lot of asthma, all that. And so with no audible sounds right away. When I went to go listen to his lungs, it's one of the first times I've clearly heard Strider only on the lung sounds because he was moving so little air. With that, and that he was on a non-breather already, grabbed the kid, asked for allergies really quick and a history, got him on the gurney and got a um, high-dose albuterol treatment going, which is our 10 milligrams, just to try to open up his lungs, try to make anything work. Got him out to the ambulance at that point, he had opened up his airway enough. He'd actually started coughing, and you could hear the the typical striderous cough. I was able to get a little bit more of the history once we got in the ambulance, and the, and he was starting to breathe a little bit better from the mom. With that, I was able to determine he had had a stuffy nose and a low-grade fever throughout the day. I'd gone to bed okay, breathing fine. They had checked on him overnight and actually had heard the barking cough, which is what alerted them that something was wrong. But by the time we had arrived, that had actually gone away because he wasn't moving enough air. With our high-dose albuterol, as that got in, he started breathing better. And so that was my differentiating point between, am I going to bag this kid or am I going to let him breathe on his own? Because his breathing was improving, I chose to just let him breathe on his own. Now that I definitely knew it was the classical stride or croup type presentation, I was able to give him the epi via the nebulizer, and that cleared him up really rapidly. That's one of the more amazing drugs I think that we give, just how fast it works. And we transported up to the children's hospital here, 
um, where once we got there, he continued to have just more of that croupy cough and they continued pretty aggressive treatments with him there. I think that's a great case showing how the floppy three-year-old is like all the pediatric respiratory distress things you don't want to see. Yeah, and yeah. when you start to hear the croupy cough, that's actually a good thing because now they're finally moving some air again. Did you move down the protocol and give the intramuscular epi or do you feel like only the nebulized epi really worked so good you didn't have to go down that route? No, I felt he improved so much with the nebulized epi. I didn't want to increase his heart rate even more because um, I know he got pretty tachycardic with that. With the nebulized epi, he had gotten to the point where he was moving all of his extremities and interacting again and actually able to talk to his mom. Oh, perfect. If after the albuterol hadn't improved and he had just gotten sicker and his, he hadn't responded to the point he started moving and acting appropriately and talking to mom, uh, I would have moved directly into the bag valve mask of the epi. And we have a connection system with the T-piece and the little hose where we can get the acorn to actually, with the bag valve mask, be able to blow in epi. And it's a little complicated getting it set up, but once you figure it out, it's pretty good setup. I think that's key that if the patient can't sit up and actually breathe in the medicine, we still have to get it in their lungs. And so going to that sooner than later is a really great point. Um, if somebody encounters this case, and as we know, croup is on the rise and happening more in winter months and at night, so it's like all the classic things. Um, just to know how to do that. And if you're if you're new to the system, kind of find out where that is and how you would bag it in, how to set it up when it's not an emergency. I think this is a great case of not anchoring, knowing that you'd seen this case, you know, quote unquote, a hundred times before, not being anchored into the reactive airway disease or the asthma part of it, but getting that additional history, moving down the protocol and using that nebulized epi really changed the course for this kid. So awesome job. Thank you. Well, I think like the same case could be if you hadn't gotten the mom's history, could be a foreign body, right? The limp kid, you're not hearing any noises, you hear a little strider. And so I feel like your case kind of evolved as you were treating it, as you got more history. And then you found the URI history, which made it. So that's a great case. Terrifying case, but great case with yeah, a good outcome. Definitely. They're very <laughs> terrifying when you have those limp kids that three-year-olds aren't supposed to not care that the fire department's there. Exactly. So. They're supposed to be freaked out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any tips for medics or EMTs who are just starting our system who might encounter this kind of call? Just keep your options open. Like I said, don't get fixated on one thing. It's really easy to, to get that tunnel vision. And as the case presents and there might be some subtle changes or more information becomes available, don't be afraid to treat out, you know, treat your other options that you have. Thanks, Travis, for being here today and sharing that with us. No problem. My pleasure. So let's talk about uh, respiratory infections in kids. Saji, want to kick us off? Sure. So classically, we think of upper respiratory tract infections as the common cold. And for most people and most kids, thankfully, uh, they're pretty benign. They're usually caused by a few different families of viruses. Um, some of the most common ones are rhinovirus, parainfluenza virus, respiratory syncytial virus, influenza virus, adenovirus, and of course, before COVID-19, we had the regular coronaviruses, um, which typically just cause the common cold. It's hard to say exactly how many of these cases show up to the emergency department. But for croup specifically, there's a study looking between 2007 and 2014. They estimated that between 350,000 to 400,000 croup-related ED visits each year, almost 1.5% of all ED visits. So this is something that's pretty common. 
you know, each child typically goes through about six to eight upper respiratory tract infections or URIs every year. And again, thankfully, the vast majority of them are benign, but they can progress to severe respiratory distress, airway compromise, or hypoxia. Uh, For example, respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, is typically benign. Almost all children are infected by age 2, but it can cause a severe respiratory syndrome known as bronchiolitis. And in infants less than 1 years of age, RSV is estimated to cause more deaths than any other single infectious agent, with the exception of malaria. So this can be really serious. Today we're going to be talking about just a few of these infections, namely croup, bronchiolitis, and epiglottitis. Croup is an infection and inflammation of the soft tissues below the vocal cords, or subglottic inflammation. Epiglottitis is infection and inflammation of the soft tissues above the vocal cords, or supraglottic inflammation. And then bronchiolitis starts as an upper respiratory infection, followed by spread down to the lower airways and into the respiratory tract, or the bronchioles. Let's go into the pathophysiology of each one, and so we'll start with croup. Um, So in croup, the viruses infect the nasal mucosa and pharyngeal mucosa and then spread down to the larynx and trachea. Another name for croup is actually laryngotracheitis, so it's inflammation of that larynx and trachea. Um, So just anatomy recap, the tracheal rings are incomplete. They're kind of U-shaped, which allows some room for expansion in cases of edema inflammation when kids are young. However, the cricoid cartilage just below the cords is a complete circle, which cannot expand. So when mucosa in this area gets inflamed, this leads to the airway becoming much smaller. In some studies, these laryngoscopic studies where they go down and look with a camera, you can get as small as one to two millimeters. If you can imagine, that's really small. So of course, not all kids infected with influenza virus develop croup. The risk of developing this severe inflammation can increase if the patient has congenital narrowing of the airway or just a hyperactive airway. Typically, um, croup starts with mild nasal congestion, discharge, a little cough, maybe mild fever. And then after about 48 hours, they can develop this barking cough and strider. So as you heard in Travis's case, right, the mom had reported that the kid had a, you know, a mild URI, mild cough and fever prior to that day. Progression of severity inflammation. So usually the strider only with a cough. So like they can talk normal, act normal, but when they start to cough, they have this barking described like it's a seal-like cough. And then they go to inspiratory strider at rest. They're just sitting there and they breathe in. You can hear that high pitch. Then it can progress to biphasic striders. That means they're getting inspiratory and expiratory noises. And then you can go to retractions and need accessory muscle use and even progress even farther. It's kind of a spectrum of disease. The inflammation kind of starts slower and builds up. And as air is not moving, it gets worse. Now, in the case of epiglottitis, now you're getting inflammation and edema above the vocal cords as opposed to below in croup. And so in this case, the epiglottis, the eriepiglottic folds and adjacent tissues are inflamed. And in severe cases, the epiglottis can actually curl posteriorly and inferiorly to act as a ball valve, which blocks flow during inspiration, but allows exhalation. So viruses cause this disease process, um, but the more severe cases are often caused by bacteria, such as Haemophilus influenza. And we have vaccines against the most virulent strain of this bacteria, but in recent years, cases have increased because of uh, the recent rise in vaccination hesitancy. Partially immunized or immunocompromised patients are at very high risk of developing this life-threatening disease. 
Haemophilus epiglottitis occurs rather abruptly and progresses very rapidly over less than 24 hours. And these patients will have fever, strider, muffled voice, and eventually will get restless, anxious, irritable, agitated, drooling. And they're usually in a specific position. They're either sitting upright in a sniffing position or tripoding. And this position maximizes their airway diameter. So it's almost like when patients have epiglottitis, they automatically will sit in a position that's going to maximize their own airway. And so this position needs to be tried to maintain as much as possible. Let's stop right there for a second, kind of describe what the sniffing position is for people if they haven't seen that before or for that tripoding position. So sniffing position is when you're kind of like your head is a little bit forward as if you're sniffing a rose, uh, whereas tripoding is when you're even more forward and you have your hands down in front of you and your head is definitely way more anterior to your body. Now, these airways are very fragile due to rapid progression and inflammation and also because agitation, crying, Uh, can worsen the obstruction. So these are patients that you approach very carefully, try to keep them with their parents, and keep their airways patent. And so the way you do this is to kind of look at what position they were in, that was their position of comfort, keep them in that position, and don't attempt to lay them flat in the gurney. Because the minute they lay flat is when their airway will collapse even more, um, and they will have more respiratory distress. And lastly, we'll talk about bronchiolitis. This is most commonly caused by RSV. However, it can also be caused by other viruses. Basically, the viruses infect the terminal bronchiolar epithelial cells, and this causes damage and inflammation of small airways characterized by edema, mucus, sloughed epithelial cells. Eventually, these obstruct or collapse the alveoli. All this makes oxygen diffusion very difficult. So the hallmark of this disease is low oxygen saturation and respiratory distress. Clinically, we start with an upper respiratory benign appearing infection for two to three days. And then as the inflammation gets lower into the respiratory tract, you start to see respiratory distress. Typically, this is when the patients are going to present. They're tachypnic, they have retractions, they have crackles on auscultation because of those collapsed alveoli, and their oxygen saturation is often less than 94%. Again, although this starts fairly benign, There was a multi-center study of almost 700 kids less than one years old diagnosed with RSV bronchiolitis, and 14% required intubation for work of breathing and hypoxia. So these kids can get really sick. And then RSV itself can also cause apnea. The mechanism is still unclear. It could be due to reflex apnea from laryngeal chemoreceptors, but this may be one of the reasons why these kids need to get intubated. They can just stop breathing especially less than one years of age, that can be really dangerous. And of course, with all these diseases, you have to remember that premature infants will be even more susceptible to severe infections, even with viruses, because they have underdeveloped lungs and underdeveloped immune systems. And I think it's hard in the field when you come on scene and you have a very sick, respiratory distressed kid, which one is it? Is it croup? Is it epiglottitis? Is it bronchiolitis? And so we're going to kind of go through the assessments And then for more tips and tricks, we want you to refer to episode 47 of our podcast, Pediatric Assessment, and also check out episode 23, Pediatric Respiratory Distress. In those episodes, um, we've gone over like the pediatric assessment triangle, how to examine a child, positions of comfort. So that way, we really want you to kind of delve into 
Um, these kids can't really talk to us at under age three. They can't communicate their shortness of breath. They can't share that. And so when they're just staring at you with those big googly eyes and they can't talk to you, we don't want to get a false sense of security. So let's walk us through the assessment. So our first step always is we're going to start with our ABCs. Airway. So we're going to maintain the child's position of comfort if possible. When you're examining the breathing, uh, look for signs of airway obstruction, either with strider or the inability to tolerate secretions. Look for increased work of breathing. Is there nasal flaring, tachypnea, retractions? When you're uh, examining for retractions, you're going to look at the muscles uh, between your ribs, under your ribs, so your intercostal muscles, subcostal muscles, suprasternal muscles, accessory muscle use in the neck or in the belly, if they're grunting or have nasal flaring. When you listen to them, when you auscultate them, you're going to listen for strider, wheezing, which is mucus and edema of the medium-sized airways, and then crackles, which is either due to atelectasis, which is collapse of the small alveoli, or due to fluid, for example, with pulmonary edema or inflammation. And then also just check their skin out. What's their cap refill like? Often these febrile, vomiting, accessory muscle-using kids can be very dehydrated and may require IV fluids. So we're going to assess for dehydration through cap refill, looking at their mucous membranes, um, and such. And again, a lot of these signs can be mixed in these different disease processes. And just like Travis mentioned in his case, he started with a fairly silent chest when he listened, and that's very concerning. As the patient started to move more air, there was a little bit of wheezing, and then later he noticed the strider. Remember, wheezing is typically a medium-sized, lower respiratory tract sign. Strider is typically an upper respiratory tract uh, obstruction sign. Subtly, these clues can kind of lead you down towards the right path in, in treating different disease processes. So let's talk about management a little bit. Let's assume that you've gone down your ABCs, you've placed the patient in an appropriate position, you're maintaining their airway, they're on oxygen. Let's discuss specific therapies that may or may not help for each disease process. Sajin, why don't you kick us off with croup? There are many therapies kind of floating around in the world about what might help at home. A lot of people have anecdotal success with taking the kid outside into the cold night air. Um, some people have had success with humidified air from a hot shower sitting in the steam in the bathroom. Again, those things anecdotally work. We haven't studied them in a randomized uh, control trial, so we can't say whether they are statistically significant. But those home therapies seem to provide some benefit anecdotally. The most supported therapies are inhaled nebulized epinephrine and oral glucocorticoid steroids. Again, like in most respiratory cases, there are no real contraindications to nebulized epinephrine. There are several different types of epinephrine. Um, there are racemic types, L-epinephrine. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a second. But basically, whatever you have, both have demonstrated improvement in symptoms, shorter lengths of stay, and decreased overall severity of disease. Basically, the mechanism of epinephrine in the upper airway constricts those leaky blood vessels, causes the extra edema and fluid to be resorbed and allows that airway to open up again. So epinephrine, like most molecules exist in different isomers. Thinking back to chemistry, there's basically a different orientation for each molecule. And racemic epi just means that they're both right-handed and left-handed versions of the molecule. And 
LEPI, which is our code EPI or our IM EPI. This is one version, one-handed version of the EPI. Now, both can work. You just have to know which you have in your rig, which you have available, because the dosing is a little bit different. The racemic EPI comes in a 2.25% solution, which is 22.5 milligrams per milliliter. And so the dose of this is 0.05 milliliters per kilogram with a max of 0.5 milliliters. And then you dilute that to a three milliliter total volume and you administer that as a nebulized solution over 15 minutes. And if all you have is IM Epi, then you can also use that at 0.5 milliliters per kilogram with a max of five milliliters administered over 15 minutes. And again, there's no difference in outcomes between the two. And I really want to just jump in and reemphasize how you mentioned that there's really no um, contraindications to giving epinephrine, especially in children. A lot of people bring up the fast heart rate. Um, but just remember for a max heart rate for a kid is 220 minus their age. So this kid was three years old, like in the case Travis shared. So 220 minus three is still really fast. So they can have a max heart rate in the two teens and be doing fine. I know it makes us nervous to see a heart rate that high, but just know when they have a primary respiratory problem, epi is the treatment regardless of the heart rate. I looked through for some case reports of any adverse effects in this disease process. I did find one case report of a five-year-old who had self-resolving ventricular tachycardia um, that was relatively asymptomatic. They had their pulses the whole time, and after a few minutes, it kind of went away on its own. And that's really the worst uh, case report that I could find. So again, no real contraindications. Just like in Travis's case, it can save their life. There are a few other things We've been trying to study over the years, but it doesn't have great data. Heliox, um, which is a combination of helium and oxygen, has been added to some pre-hospital protocols. However, there just haven't been any large trials demonstrating any benefit. And they actually just published an updated Cochrane review in 2021, looking at all the possible non-biased trials, and they only found three with a total of 91 patients. And those trials didn't show any obvious benefit. So the bottom line is, nebulized epinephrine, and supporting respirations are the best things you can do for this patient. All right, let's jump to epiglottitis. Patil. Now, in epiglottitis, uh, the most important thing you can do in the pre-hospital setting is to just maintain the airway. So the goals are to keep the patient comfortable. Don't force masks on them. The key will be how still they're keeping their heads and to, again, keep them in that position of comfort. Now, just so everybody is aware, hoping you're never in this situation, but these are very difficult intubations. And that's because the airway is so massively edematous and basically just clamped down. So even in the hospital setting, we'll call for help if we're going to intubate one of these patients. We might get anesthesia involved. We might get the surgeons involved so that we can have the most controlled airway. And sometimes all you get is one look before needing to proceed to a surgical airway, which is really one of the last things you want to do in a pediatric patient. Now, also, the concept of supraglottic airway doesn't really work in these patients because you can't get past the obstruction. So there's no point in trying to um, force a supraglottic airway into these kids. Let's jump to bronchiolitis. So although it can be tempting to see these sick kids and want to treat them with many different therapies, fortunately or unfortunately, there's really no proven therapies other than oxygen and nasal functioning to help these kids that have RSV and these bronchiolitis. So a meta-analysis of 30 trials concluded there was no improvement in oxygenation after bronchodilator therapy, like albuterol. 
So even in patients who are later diagnosed with asthma, other meta-analyses have shown corticosteroid use like dexamethasone or prednisolone does not improve outcomes. So despite this data, many clinical societies agree with a one-time trial of inhaled bronchodilators for moderate to severe disease. Just don't rely on these therapies to improve the patient. They need to be transported to the emergency department for supplemental oxygen. They need suctioning and if they're not improving at home. So I think that makes sense why in our protocols, we still have um, the nebulized albuterol in there because you do want to give them a trial of it. So try it in the pre-hospital setting. If you think that the patient might have bronchiolitis and not croup, you're still going to try the nebulized albuterol. So in severe cases in the hospital, you know, they're getting humidified high-flow nasal cannula. They're getting CPAP and then intubation if they need it because it's really a hypoxia problem and they need that oxygen support. And I think with these three infectious processes, sometimes in the beginning it is very hard to tease them apart. And so I think what you mentioned of just try the albuterol, try the epi, I don't think these things are going to kind of hurt in any of these cases because you're not going to know in the beginning which one of these you're dealing with. Yeah, let's go through our own um, SEMSA, Central California EMS Agency protocol. Sajin. So the pediatric respiratory distress protocol starts with assessing the airway. Observe respirations and auscultate the lungs. And again, especially in the case if you suspect epiglottitis, we're not trying to visualize the airway or examine the oropharynx, just supporting respirations, keeping them in the position of comfort. If you can, try to get oxygen on the patient. If they're in distress, 100% by non-rebreather mask or blow-by oxygen. Our first medical therapy is going to be nebulized albuterol. So in our system, in a child 14 years and under, we're going to be using 10 milligrams or 2 cc's of the multi-dose vial. And you can repeat this twice. Really, you should be transporting these patients immediately after you get that first treatment started. Now, if you have a really high suspicion of croup, and you don't think there's any wheezing or reactive airway component, you can skip nebulized albuterol and proceed straight to nebulized epinephrine. And in our system, we have a protocol for using the 1 in 10,000 dilution or the 1 in 1,000 dilution. So just as a reminder, the 1 in 10,000 dilution is our code epi, and you can give 0.3 milligrams or 3 cc's of that epi. Or if you're using the IM anaphylaxis dose, you can use 0.3 milligrams, which will be 0.3 cc's diluted with 2.7 cc's of normal saline for a total of 3 cc's in your acorn. So you can nebulize that. These are sick patients in respiratory distress. We're going to minimize on-scene time, try to keep the parents in the rig, keep the patient in a comfortable position, and transport as quickly as possible. If you still aren't getting anywhere, we do have an IM epidose in severe distress. It is 0.01 milligrams per kilogram with a max dose of 0.4 mLs IM of the 1 to 1,000 dilution. There are some special considerations. As Travis mentioned, you can proceed to bag valve mask administration of albuterol or epi um, using a T-piece between the bag valve mask and using the ACARN in between. So this is the same dose of albuterol or epi that you'd be using in the acorn as a nebulized solution, but you're going to be using the bag to blow air through the acorn into the patient's airway. One other thing in the special considerations that um, I find to be a handy tip is don't examine the throat 
Don't try to spend the time or effort to look inside the throat because that might upset these patients even more and put them at further risk of airway compromise. And that goes for epiglottitis, but also some foreign bodies that can be um, stuck in the throat. Sometimes they're sitting in a position where they're just able to move some air and we don't want to move that foreign body into a position where it's completely blocking the airway. I think that's a great point. With a respiratory symptom, you can always make it worse. And so you have to say right now, they're in a position of comfort, they're oxygenated, okay, like let's not mess with a good thing. Let's just get them to definitive care where we have more backup and more resources. Let's go through each one, just kind of summarize each one. So that way, if we get confused, we can separate the three entities. So in croup, uh, the pathophysiology, remember, is subglottic inflammation, usually caused by the parainfluenza virus, and it presents with barking cough and inspiratory strider. And our main treatment is going to be nebulized epinephrine and steroids. For bronchiolitis, the pathophysiology is inflammation of the lower airways, usually caused by RSV or the respiratory syncytial virus. And it presents with crackles that don't improve with coughing and hypoxia. And the goal treatment is going to be oxygen, and you will definitely do a trial albuterol nebulizer prior to that. Now, in epiglottitis, this is due to inflammation of the epiglottis, classically in a non-immunized child, and it presents with drooling, upright posture in a sniffing or tripoding position. And the main goal is to maintain the airway and um, to get them antibiotics once they get to a healthcare facility. Thanks for that awesome summary. Let's just go around now and say take-home points. What do we want people to remember in our pediatric respiratory infections? Sajan. I think my take-home point is keep the child in a position of comfort. Again, don't mess with them if they are able to oxygenate well in that moment and do what you can to support them, but try not to agitate them more. My take-home point is that in the beginning, you're not going to know what exactly this patient might have, but you do know they're in respiratory distress. And so trialing both albuterol and epinephrine is fine. And don't be scared to give epinephrine to kids. Yeah, my take-home point is very similar. I think epinephrine should be your best friend. You know, memorize your doses of epinephrine in these scary situations. You don't have time to look it up. And no matter what the cause, if it's severe asthma, severe croup, severe anything to do with the airway, they're going to get a dose of epinephrine. This or pediatric is not going to hurt their heart. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, And we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.